The gist is brought to you by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, May 23rd, 2016 from Slate. It's the GIST I'm Mike Pesca. So on this show, we do talk show karaoke, which is an opportunity for me to pretend, or you, anyone, anyone can play talk show karaoke. You see someone on TV, they're asked a question, they answer it wrongly, so you superimpose yourself with me, it's me we're talking about, I superimpose myself onto the person and answer how they should have asked. Hillary Clinton was asked this question on Meet the Press by moderator Chuck Todd. Mark Cuban. Uh, yes, I, yes. Uh, did a uh, interview with him uh, uh, earlier. He expressed serious interest. If you called him up and said, uh, I want to vet you to be my running mate, he'd listen. What do you say to that? Now, sometimes on talk show karaoke, we bring it up because it's a stupid question. We want to shame the questioner. Sometimes it's because, oh, there's a better, more factual answer. This is just pure wish fulfillment. Now, this answer that I'm about to give that Hillary should have given If she'd given it, she definitely would win the election. She probably will anyway. But this would close the man gap right here. So again, the question is... If you called him up and said, uh, I want to vet you to be my running mate, he'd listen. What do you say to that? Answer. Mark Cuban would consider me? Well, you know... Given his track record of screwing up the Mavericks, screwing up the DeAndre Jordan signing, inking the erratic Rajon Rondo to a deal that had him shipping his number one pick to the Celtics this year. In fact, what were the Mavericks this year? A scrap heap for failed Northeast point guards, Raymond Felton, Deron Williams, Rajon Rondo. Listen, you think figuring out which side to back in Syria or whether to intervene in post-Qaddafi Libya is easy, and you can't even figure out a way to have Dirk Nowitzki retire with dignity? And by the way... Russell Westbrook is indeed a superstar. I'd make him a three-star general if the Army would allow it. So yeah, I'm glad, Chuck, that you landed an interview with a businessman best known for playing a businessman on an NBC-owned reality show. How's that going for America? So thanks, but no thanks. If, however, Theo Epstein is listening, I am interested. That's what Hillary should have said. On the show today, I spiel about what could be the greatest movie in cinematic history, in which Christopher Walken turns Kevin Spacey into a cat. But first, the ongoing crisis of the very idea of peer review has got us rethinking a lot of what we think we know. An interesting new study reveals that most studies aren't interesting or new or particularly revealing. I'm simplifying here, but what I'm talking about is the problem with scientific studies. It's a crisis, you might say. Replication is much harder to come by than originally thought. And another problem occurring at the same time that is related is one of peer review. So a smart idea comes out. Other wise people in the field look over that smart idea. They say, hey, seems good to me. And a stamp of approval is affixed. But so much can and does go wrong with this method of peer review, which is to say, I think it's fair to say, a lot of what we think we know, we really don't know. Joining me now is Ivan Orlansky. He's the founder of Retraction Watch. He's a distinguished writer in residence at NYU's Carter Journalism Institute. Hello, Ivan. 
Hi, Mike. You were on our show before, and we talked about essentially a cheating ring where people would fake review or invent personae and get their scientific studies published. So it's really bad at detecting cheaters. But there are other reasons why it's just really bad at detecting honest mistakes, specifically statistic-based mistakes. Editors actually will admit when pressed, and usually they're being pressed when the retraction happens, that peer review is not designed to to find fraud. Uh, We actually would challenge that a little bit and say, you know what, if peer reviewers were given enough time and given incentives, uh, who knows, even maybe paying them, uh, and if there weren't so many papers to review, maybe they'd actually have time to do that. But at the end of the day, peer reviewers are, they're often rushed. Uh, They're asked to peer review a lot. Again, they don't get paid for it. And so, you know, they're looking at things at a very superficial level. Uh, some of them are not. Some of them are really digging and finding things. We actually heard from a number of people after we published our piece, which was you know pretty critical of peer review. Again, using the editors and publishers' own words, okay, their own criticisms of peer review here. That was important. Um, we actually heard from people who said, "Hey, wait a second. You know, all those things that all those editors and publishers said that peer review doesn't do. I actually find those things, and I've rejected. You know, I've recommended rejecting papers based on that." And the problem is we actually don't know about all those things. But the other fact is, you know, a paper can be perfectly reasonable on its surface. When you look at it and you say, oh, yeah, I showed a different, you know, this researcher showed a difference between this group and that group. But it wasn't an important difference or it was in a really small sample size. And it sort of showed something called statistical significance, which, you know, sounds important but actually doesn't turn out to be important when you look at what it really needs. Yeah, so, but is it better than nothing? I mean, I understand we have this system and maybe it was put in place due to the best intentions at the time, and now the modern world, it has proved a little bit inadequate, but it's something, right? I mean, to take your toothless watchdog analogy, a toothless watchdog can still bark, right? Yeah, I mean, in our piece, we sort of made it even more ridiculous and said that the dog couldn't even bark, but <laughs> to, your, to your point, Yes, if you think about that metaphor, uh, a toothless dog can still bark. My dog barks a lot, a little too much, to be honest, but, you know, that's how how the world goes. It is better than nothing, and we're certainly not arguing for doing away with it. What we're trying to argue for is, let's put it in context, okay? It's a good filter, but why would you ever trust one thing? You know, in certain industries, you've got to do something called, you know, go all the way out to what's known as Six Sigma, which is this sort of insane, like making sure that things are what they seem to be. And peer review is, you know, it's a good, it's a good first pass. It's a good sort of, it's a first edit. Maybe it's your, you know, when you're a student, another student looking at it going, huh, here's some questions I'd like you to answer. Right. But it's not your faculty member. It's not your professor. You know, it's not your editor or your producer at a television station or anything like that. And really what we need to do is embrace the idea that just because something's published and peer-reviewed doesn't make it gospel, let's continue reviewing it, let's continue, you know, taking those criticisms into account, because every bit of knowledge that science produces, and science produces a heck of a lot of knowledge every day, every year, every bit of knowledge is provisional. I'm not the first person to say that. So how much, I mean, impossible to answer, but can you help us get our minds around the question, how much of what we think we know is not true? I'll answer it this way and see if you think it's a good answer. But John Maddox was the editor of Nature magazine, uh, you know, just about 20, 30 years ago. 
And then a reporter basically asked him that question, although in a sort of British cheeky way, you'd say. He said, John, how much of what you publish every week is wrong? And, and he expected Maddox to sort of be flummoxed. And Maddox said, that's the easiest question anyone's ever asked me. Everything that we publish is wrong. Now, did he mean that, you know, the minute it was published, it was wrong? No, he meant that over time, it's overturned. So if you, you know, that's a sort of very global 30,000-foot view. But if you look at certain fields, I mean, psychology, when a bunch of researchers uh, led by Brian Nosek at the Center for Open Science tried to reproduce, replicate 100 sort of key psychology studies, they found that they could only replicate, it was under 40%, depending on which definition you used, basic uh, science studies that sort of turn into preclinical research. You know, we're looking at a little bit under 50% that could be reproduced. Economics has looked at this, and again, there are a couple different studies in this, but, you know, something like 60% can't be reproduced. So, you know, the numbers are pretty big. Really, the question is, what is the right number? You don't want 100% reproducibility, because that's like betting on a sure thing every single time. It means scientists aren't taking any chances. They're not really pushing any envelopes. But I don't think it's really a stretch to say that 50% is probably a bit too high, and we should sort of look at ways to increase the reproducibility rate. Now, as far as reproducibility, you wrote about this in Slate, actually, with your partner, Adam Marcus, the unintended consequences of trying to replicate research. What are they? So one of the ones that we focused on, you know, replication sounds like a good idea, and I want to be clear, it really is a good idea, and we need to promote it. We've also written that, you know, if we're going to give more funding to the NIH, for example, which one of the uh, bills in Congress would like to do, the 21st Century Cures Act, let's actually earmark a lot of it, a fair amount, maybe even half of it, to replication studies. So we, we believe in replication. We think it's really important. But what we were talking about in terms of one of the big unintended consequences of replication isn't so much an unintended consequence or a bad consequence of replication. It's a bad consequence of the fact that journals like to publish positive findings, right? Yes. You sort of started off talking about, you know, we don't know what we thought we knew and all of this. You know, journals aren't particularly interested in saying that. They're interested in saying, hey, we just, you know, figured out that if you wear red, you're more angry. I mean, that's, that's of course, nonsense. But, you know, that's a sort of pop psychology finding that everyone loves. And we all write about it as journalists, and isn't everyone happy? So if you replicate only the, you know, and you can only publish the positive findings, you take all the negative findings or the sort of noncommittal findings, and they sit in your file drawer, which is sort of the file drawer problem, then all you're doing is you're actually amplifying the, the bad signal. You're amplifying, you know, the part of it we sort of talked about in the piece. It's as if you're looking at a tiny, um, you know, detail of a map. Uh, it's actually an island in the Manova Lake, but you can only see the island, so you think you're looking at a continent. You think you're looking at all land, but you're actually looking at a tiny island in the middle of a lake. So right. that's the kind of problem. Now, there's one thing I want to ask you about, because I'm, I'm sure you've been asked about it and how you process it. You know, there are a couple of areas right now societally where I think people on the side of science are beating their heads against the wall because masses of people do not believe in global warming phenomena, 
do not believe in Darwinism or evolution. And I have seen writing citing you saying that Darwinists have had to back off considerably from the once confident <laughs> assertion that peer review in science journals constitutes a gold standard. And this was this was written by an intelligent desi- design proponent saying you can't believe anything and you can't you can't hold us to peer review because peer review is a toothless watchdog anyway. So how do you uh, how do you answer that? <laughs> by uh, chuckling. We, we... <laughs> yeah, we we well usually by chuckling first. Uh, that wasn't always how I felt about it. You know, look, um, people will, as you know, uh, Mike, from from your own work. I mean, people will sort of uh, take things out of context and sort of put their own spin on it. And yeah, I, I'm not going to stop them. Uh, and it, it'd be it'd be you know trying to uh, you know put my finger in a hundred holes in the dike. I mean, that's going to happen. I think the problem is that you know the argument. It appears to be, and you can you look at this in global warming, as you mentioned. You can look at it in anti-vacciners, right? Mm-hmm. You can look at it in uh, people who may believe in intelligent design and what have you. And the argument seems to be, the unifying argument is, well, because the scientists who say all these things are X is true or this isn't true, um, you know, they say vaccines don't cause autism, but aha, look over here, there's a study that, you know, peer review lets through that's faulty. Um, that actually isn't a useful argument. It's, I, I believe it's reductio ad certum, right? Although my, you know, my Latin is not so good. Um, and that, you know, and therefore the thing that I want to sell you is actually more useful. So, well, since we don't know everything, since we don't know a hundred percent that we're not, we can't prove anything based on peer review and science, then therefore it's, it's intelligent design or it's creationism or, Therefore, well, you know, Western medicine is clearly faulty, so you should buy this, you know, supplement that I'm selling you or, or you know, don't go to the hospital because, you know, it's a terrible place. None of that's true. You, you can, and because if you subjected any of those things, and by the way, most of them have been subjected to rigorous analysis, they fail completely. It's not subtle. It's not sort of, oh, sometimes this doesn't work out and we're still learning. They fail completely. Yes. I mean... You're not just arguing against this lazy level of analysis. You're arguing for rigorous analysis. And whatever the snake oil or, or intelligent design is does not meet the criterion of exactly what you're arguing for, which is rigorous analysis. Exactly. Make it all rigorous. And you know what? Some of the things we do hold dear and that we think are true will fall away because they won't be true. And that's okay. But all that stuff that we're sure is not true, you know, you may have seen the interview or read the transcript of uh, Robert De Niro getting on to today's show and saying, you know, we just want the truth, or we just want knowledge. I, I, I don't want to misquote him, but he does something very close to that. In an hey. anti, about an anti-vaxxer movie, yeah. There's a lot of things that are not said. I, as a parent of a child who has autism, I'm concerned, and I want to know the truth. Guess what? We know the truth. That one isn't subtle, okay? Peer review, et cetera, has, got, has found absolutely no link between autism and vaccines, and yet this sort of pernicious, you know, well, we don't know, and look, see, and, and the anti-vaccine movement has a particular problem when it tries to sort of use arguments about, like we make, about peer review not being 100%, because their biggest sort of claim has been completely debunked, uh, and actually was one that got through peer review in the first place. So I'm not a sophisticated enough person to get my head you know, my brain into that kind of pretzel where that is somehow an argument for autism and vaccines. Ivan Oransky is global editorial director of MedPage Today, a distinguished writer in residence at NYU and co-founder of Retraction Watch. Also Embargo Watch. The guy does a lot. Thank you, Ivan.
Thank you, Mike. Good shave and a good price. Those are the things that make Harry's unique. Good shave means that there's one razor. It will fill all your needs, a close, comfortable shave, five German-crafted blades, flex hinge, lubricating strip. I'm, I'm listing adjectival phrases that seem to correlate with quality razors, but I'm here to tell you that they do. Was on TV today, shaved last night, questioned, will this be a good enough shave? It was that, plus a little TV makeup. I looked great, thanks to Harry's and not highly accurate cameras. Plus, quality's guaranteed a full refund if you're not happy, but the big difference with Harry's is the price. Factory direct prices, no middleman, no upcharges, really half the price of the leading brand and a great razor. So here is how good the price is. Let me tell you about the starter set. For $15, this is called the Truman set. They have different kinds of razors, you know, artisanal. So for 15 bucks, you get the razor handle, that's the Truman, you get moisturizing shave cream, and you get three of Harry's five blade German engineered razor. Special offer for fans of the show, so that's $15, that's for everyone. If you want to use our code and you haven't shopped at Harry's before, you haven't used the code, the gist, they'll give you $5 off. You go to H-A-R-R-Y-S.com and enter code gist, harrys.com, enter the code gist at checkout to get $5 off and help support the show. Stop compromising and give Harry's a try today. And now the spiel, magic, workaholic, dream dad. I've seen the future, and in it, Kevin Spacey is a cat. Wait a minute. I'm a cat! Yes, you're a cat. And perhaps more remarkably, you're also Kevin Spacey. No, wait, according to press notes, you're Tom Brand, a billionaire whose workaholic lifestyle leaves him disconnected from his beautiful wife and adoring daughter. You knew Kevin Spacey was a chameleon. Well, now he's also a cat. Yes, in case you didn't get it, here's Christopher Walken to explain it in the trailer. You haven't been there for your family. You have one week to reconnect with them. Are you going to be stuck in that cat for the rest of your life? Now, there is a long, a very long tradition in film where a workaholic dad neglects his family until a transformation, usually a magical transformation, intervenes. There was Jim Carrey in Liar, Liar. But what made him a successful lawyer? Your ex-wife called. I have to go to court this afternoon. Fletcher, it's his birthday. Also made him an unpredictable father. He said he was going to be here, he promised. There was Michael Keaton as Frosty the Snowman. No, wait, that's not our intellectual property. All right, we'll call him this guy. Michael Keaton is Jack Frost. Get him! What's going on? Oh, nothing. A father who gets a second chance to be the world's coolest dad. There was Eddie Murphy in an incredible bomb called Imagine That. The audience couldn't. He played a guy named Evan Danielson. And for Evan Danielson... For Evan Danielson, life was all work. You said you'd do dress-up. Daddy has a lot of work to do. And no play. Until, I kid you not, his daughter's imaginary princess friends gave him stock tips and her security blanket possessed the key to his business success. Do you honestly believe that that blanket has something to do with everything that's been going on? But is it really so far-fetched? I mean, we all know that famous story where... 
Steve Jobs is an obsessive businessman with no time for his kids. Until one day, his eight-year-old's wild imagination, it's like a brick with all the world's songs ever made inside of it, gives him an idea. And you talk to it, and it understands you, and its magic has nothing to do with Chinese labor. All right, so it's a little bit of wish fulfillment. You know, I can name four Robin Williams movies along the theme of career-obsessed dad finally connecting with his children. I mean, Steven Spielberg used Robin Williams to ruin the perfectly good Peter Pan with his concept for Hook. Listen, it's my son's big game. Last game of the season, Santa series. I gotta be there, I promise. So, we'll make it a short meeting. Robin Williams also in Jumanji. Mrs. Doubtfire belongs to this genre. RV. No magic in there, but all reconnecting workaholic dads. The genre obtains, I submit, because, well, because Kevin Spacey is a cat. That's hilarious. I mean, take any one of Frank Underwood's House of Cards breaking the fourth wall monologue and play them over images of cats. That is two million views on YouTube. Easy. We're talking mom in the Chewbacca mask territory. But there's also the fact, the other reason why this genre obtains and why the movie was made is the obvious notion that Kevin Spacey saw the money that Bill Murray got for Garfield and said, sign me up for that. But that's not the real reason. The real reason is that the genre, stupid as it is, so perfectly addresses our anxieties. Men have always worked hard. I mean, that's what men are supposed to do. But now being an American male feels a little more downwardly mobile. It feels like your job is endangered. And this is all going on at the same time that the American male has been told co-parent, right? They hear it as go 50-50, studies show it's a little less. But still, he's feeling pinched. He's feeling anxious. There never is enough time. And the wish fulfillment is that some magic intervenes. So you're saying, ah, that's what the magic is. Kevin Spacey is a cat. Michael Keaton is a snowman. Robin Williams is Peter Pan. Eddie Murphy as a star of a movie called Imagine That. But that is not, in fact, the real magic. The real magic in this movie is that the dad can now spend all this uninterrupted time with the child. It won't hurt his career. And also, through a series of tasks, accomplishable quests that involve physicality and doing something, not say, talk therapy, the father can reconnect with the child. Before dads were given the message that working was something to be balanced with family life, there were movies of transformation, movies, there are are myths of men transformed. And back then, those movies, when they were movies, they addressed the anxieties of that time. Let's go to 1964. This is a film this is an unbelievable film called The Incredible Mr. Limpet. And I don't have to explain too much because in 1964, the idiom of the movie trailer was pretty explicit. Don Knotts stars in a big new color movie as The Incredible Mr. Limpet. As a man, Limpet's what you'd call a, a poor fish. But as a fish, Limpet is, well, he's incredible. Back then, the tension, the anxiety was in wimpishness and manliness. Mr. Limpet, the fish version of Mr. Limpet, helps the military sink enemy submarines. So that's the anxiety. But were there really dozens of these movies like they are today? And that's the last genius of the workaholic dad movie. Well, well, obviously, the ultimate genius is the stuffy businessman who becomes a fluffy businessman. But the transformed workaholic dad not only addresses our anxieties by packaging it in a entertaining, high-concept, hour-45-minute brain-on-hold format, but 
the very act of taking your child to see one of these movies in some extremely small way solves the very work-parenthood balance itself. I mean, of course, it really doesn't. You know, you really don't want to see Nine Lives, but Connor and Kylie so very much do. So you'll go and you'll give yourself a quarter parenting point for doing so. Maybe bump it up to a half point if you don't go in for the movie theater snacks and popcorn. You smuggle in a bag of carrots and some go-gurt. So that's why the movies are genius. That's why so many of them are made. There is, of course, one last unaddressed question here. No, the last unaddressed question isn't how does Nine Lives end? I mean, I haven't seen it, but I'm going to guess that billionaire Tom Brand learns what in his life is of real value. Maybe the last shot is of his hard-charging underling finding out that he's a schnauzer. Q, Nine Lives 2, dog days. Oh, wait, wait, here, here's, here's how it'll end. The actual family cat in the Brand family winds up becoming the CEO of Kevin Spacey's old company. Mr. Whiskers asked not to be disturbed when he's testing new balls of string. All right, I'd go with that. But anyway, the big question not actually answered in these movies is why are there no transformative, magical transformative mom movies? I cannot think of one. Could it be that focus groups don't warm to the idea of Robin Wright Penn becoming a talking dolphin in the family romp mother flipper? Not likely. It's just that women are always expected to parent, and if they shunt those responsibilities for a career, that decision will not be interpreted as sympathetic or relatable or fodder for a put-your-brains-on-hold cineplex-packing comedy. It's sexist, it's a double standard, but you know what? It saved us from Ursula Thompson never had enough time to play with her kids. I'm sorry, honey. I'm too busy. Maybe your teddy bear can go to the tea party. Until one day, she found herself playing house in a very real way. Wait a minute. I thought I just waxed that. Jennifer Jason Lee is Mama Bear. <laughs> On May 29th, the fur will fly. In this comedy, stuffed with possibility. Mama Bear, bearing down in a theater near you. Does this tale make my butt look big? Be honest. And that's it for today's show. Mary Wilson is the producer of The Gist. Until one day, she found herself getting the real scoop. Mary Wilson is... Pelican producer. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Until one day, he found himself coming out of his shell. It's over, but it ain't easy. Steve Lichtai is executive producer. Andy Bowers is chief content officer of the Panoply Network. Until one day, he found himself rump roasting to a different tune. Andy Bowers is beef content officer. The gist. Until one day, we found ourselves swimming upstream. The gist. Codcast. Something fishy's going on. It won't kill you to listen. Um, And really, thanks for listening.